Your attention, please. The museum will be closing in 10 minutes. Any security officer can direct you to an exit. We hope you have enjoyed your visit. I love also you telling us a little bit about the back of house side of it and how you do it. I think is wonderful because often that is not well understood. And I think, um, you know, that's fascinating. But I think there's such parallels. If I look at some of the projects and the people we're working with at the moment, where they're, they're looking to activate university campuses and broker that relationship with disenfranchised students or they're looking at high streets where you know 80% of the shops are closed and they're desperately working out what on earth social infrastructure means you know you are dealing with so many of the same questions but also you're prototyping it in some ways in a way that they could learn much from but in my view, there's not nearly enough cross-fertilization because essentially people don't know they're in the same business, which is the business of making memorable experiences. And that's what I'm, I'm really fascinated with. Today on the Free Thinking Podcast, it is our great pleasure to speak with Beth Hines, Project Director for Sydney Living Museums and a wonderful storyteller. Beth shows us the importance of social infrastructure to hold the space for community and connection and discusses how immersive experiences create meaning in place. We are then transported to Parramatta's female factory in Sydney, Australia, an upcoming project honouring the deeply emotional and complex history it emerges from. Hello, Beth. So, good morning, Beth. Thank you for joining us all the way live from Sydney today. My pleasure, Adam. Nice to see you. Well, it's nice to have you. So, can you give me, just to help us set a bit of context, a few words about your role at Sydney Living Museums? And I'm particularly interested in the living bit of that, if you could tell us a bit more. Sure. So, my role at Sydney Living Museums, which has a whole series of different uh, properties and museums in its portfolio. So my role has always been in the, the kind of making meaning of place and histories by creating experiences. So that can be through really traditional mu- museum exhibitions um, all the way through to creating kind of food tasting experiences at historic houses or really immersive experiences um, telling the history of the place and kind of um, exposing people to what it would have felt like to live through that history. So we're a portfolio of historic places um, of some significance and some ordinariness. And my role at Sydney Living Museums has always been to try and um, kind of unlock that living history for our our visitors and, and allow them to participate in it as much as is possible. Oh, I mean, I, I find it fascinating, the idea of participating, particularly in something that's significant, but also, as you said, ordinary, the ordinariness I find fascinating. And I remember you told me about, it was this journey, because I, I think for, for listeners to imagine how they might experience this, I mean, you were talking about the journey through Hyde Park Barracks. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that so we could walk in your shoes and imagine that a little together. 
Sure. So the Hyde Park Barracks is right in the middle of the um, central part of Sydney down at CBD, um, kind of um, on the opposite end of what's called Macquarie Street from the Sydney Opera House. Um, and both the Hyde Park Barracks and the Sydney Opera House are World Heritage listed um, attractions, if you will, but enormously different um, in what they offer. And a couple of years ago, we decided to revamp the visitor experience at the Hyde Park Barracks. It's been a museum of itself, of its history, um, since about 1990. And so it was time for us to, to kind of bring that up into the present. And it's a really interesting place because it's a place that was a dormitory barracks. So it wasn't a military barracks. It was a dormitory barracks for convicts, for male convicts who were in government service. And then it had a long long kind of public life as a as an immigration depot for young women as an asylum for older women um, and ill and destitute women and then sort of a series of of courts and and other kind of government official business before it became a museum so we decided that we really wanted to bring that history to life particularly by focusing on the periods of that history where people slept in the building to really bring back some of that that sense of what it would have felt like, the kind of reverberations of all of those lives within this place. It's also a place that had enormous impacts on the rest of Sydney and New South Wales because it was the engine room of convict labour in that early colonial period. So we're talking about 1820s, 1830s, 1840s in its convict period. So it was administering the convict system, which it meant in essence um, building Sydney, using that convict labour to build Sydney, and then sending convicts out beyond Sydney into the kind of pastoral frontier to create um, wealth for colonial settlers, which, of course, in the process of doing all of those things, um, took country from First Nations communities and dispossessed them from their land, from their sacred places, from their language. So we wanted to bring to life for our visitors, what that history both felt like at the time, but also what it still continues to mean to us today. What we discovered in the course of, of that project was that people, people were really lost. They were lost in the property. It's a very Georgian um, building, a central building within a courtyard. It's all very symmetrical and yet very bamboozling for people to understand the, the built heritage itself. And the story was really not very accessible either. People assumed it was the barracks of a military sense, or they came with a very particular um, understanding of the convict system, which was often the stereotype of the convict system, not actually the way convicts were, were treated. So we wanted to sort of peel back the layers of the official history to find that what it would have um, been like to live through that history, but also kind of deal head on with some of the real impacts of the convict system and 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 dispel some of the myths about what that meant. You know, the the poor man who stole a loaf of bread to feed his starving family who ended up on the other side of the world through no fault of his own um, is quite a... a, a, a kind of a myth within the convict system. Um, and we wanted to actually take that cardboard cut out and make it into a real person uh, for people. 
I, I, I mean, I find it fascinating this point about the reverberations of life. And I think, you know, your, the stories of all these dispossessed people, these people who have lost their land, lost their place, lost country, I think I find incredibly moving and imagining them all there together. Tell us about, about those reverberations. I mean, I remember you telling me particularly about one room, which was the legacy room, where you've taken people on a journey that was through time. So they're feeling what it was like then, but also you're trying to help them feel about what it feels like now. And tell us a bit about that, because that sounds very hard to do, to leap forward those 200 years. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, you know, we start the journey um, on the eve of the barracks opening. So in 1815 in Sydney, um, because we wanted people to kind of come at it from the very beginning. So we follow a convict on his journey um, from coming off the um, coming off the ship and coming through Sydney. And, and back then, of course, Sydney was just a, an, an open space for, for convicts. So you'd live in your own house, you'd show up to work, you know, during the day, and then you'd have time on your own to, to work. And so the barracks was built to control and confine and, and use that labor to government ends. What we do is we start that journey and we walk people through that experience. I should explain that that we use a kind of geolocating technology and we've created a really immersive audio experience. So our visitors put on headsets and as they walk through the building and the spaces and the, the installations we've put in those spaces, they trigger the different parts of the story as they walk through. So it's bec it becomes something that you're actively following as you go. If you don't, if you're not interested in looking at something and you skip it, then you just simply don't trigger that um, that sound bubble. But in between all the spaces where you have to walk, there's a narrator who guides you so you're not lost in the story. So people walk through that early convict story, then they cross into the barracks building itself and they go up to the top level and they start with that early convict history and the impact that building um, Sydney and those places further afield from Sydney and the impact of that convict labour had on on both the creation of, of the city that we know today. And so you look into, for example, you look into um, little models of Sydney and you can recognise the buildings that are t of today, but they're being built by the convicts at that time. Or on the other side of that same room, um, you're told stories um, spoken from an Aboriginal perspective on the sort of places that were being um impacted through the creation of, of cattle and sheep farms on country outside of, of Sydney and what happened in those sorts of places in terms of some of the resistance and some of the um, harm that came to Aboriginal people. You go down a floor and you move forward in time to the 1830s, which became a very punitive time for convicts and really much more um, 
harsher uh, experiences as people would sort of imagine from the very beginning. It actually came in towards the end of the convict period. And this is when particularly a huge numbers of convicts were arriving from the UK and being funneled out of Sydney into um, quite distant places on the frontier and on these huge pastoral properties. And this is really where a lot of that settlement was fueling quite terrible outcomes for First Nations and Aboriginal communities, including quite a number of, of massacres of, of innocent Aboriginal people um, who were caught up in these frontier wars. And so we tell that story as well, spoken um, in language from an Aboriginal person today who's a descendant of one of the survivors of one of the best known massacres, the Mile Creek Massacre. And from there, we talk about the end of the convict system. And then the final floor really looks at um, what happened to the barracks next, which is that it became a depot for immigrant girls arriving from the UK and particularly started with young women, um, 14 to 18 years old, fleeing the great hunger in Ireland and coming here to start a new life. So again, you're kind of immersed in this really emotional experience of loss and separation, but hope and starting a new um, life. And we finish up when the last people to sleep in the building were um, destitute and ill women, many ex-convicts who didn't have family connections to look after them. And so the, the government kind of stepped in and created this, this asylum. And, and that finishes people sleeping in the building and kind of those, those, those moments and those memories of that life that you can almost feel in a building like that um, finished. And I thought, well, that you can't finish there because all of that is so meaningful and it means so much to people. And we know that because people come to places like the Hyde Park Barracks and they try to find somebody to talk to, to tell them about their ancestor who went through a similar experience or who had a connection to that place. I know from the work I did working with the Aboriginal communities who agreed to share their stories, that what happened to their communities is very much still alive in them today and continues to shape their everyday life and their families um, as they as they navigate, you know, the world as it as it is today. And we know walking through Sydney, which has this great colonial legacy of sandstone buildings, all built by convicts that were sitting in that um, building every night, that there there is this long legacy that comes out of a place like this. And I wanted people to finish that experience, walk out the front door, and see. Sydney in that little bit different light. And I thought the way to do that was to actually have some of those people that keep seeking us out. They're just normal, ordinary people. They're nothing, nothing special. They're not celebrities. They're not kind of giving you an endorsement. They're just people who have this really strong emotional connection to this story in this place. So we decided to create this legacy room inspired by some other work that had been done in Australia where people were filmed it full body on a black background and the screens are, are life-size. And so you walk up to this life-size person 
who then you trigger the sound bubble and they start telling you their story. And we just did these really quite short little kind of, you know, 30 seconds to a minute um, sort of conversations really where this person tells you about their connection to this place and why it matters to them. And, you know, I really asked people to, to be in a really uncomfortable place because we bring them into this recording studio. They'd go through hair and makeup, so then they're getting nervous. We'd put them in this kind of black-curtained um, enclosure to make it so that the visitor in the museum um, has direct eye contact as if you're sitting and talking to this person yourself. They put me, who was interviewing them, in it behind, you know, Wizard of Oz style, behind another curtain with a camera in my face and then projected my face onto the camera that was filming the person speaking. So they're answering me directly, which makes you as a museum visitor feel like they're talking directly to you. And then I just ask them to be themselves and tell me this really interesting story about their connection to this place, which was not the easiest thing to do. Um, but what you get from that is a series of stories of, of 15 people on three different screens um, that tell you why this place matters to them. And these are descendants of convicts, descendants of those immigrant women that we spoke of, um, descendants of the Aboriginal people who were impacted by the stories that we tell. And so these are the, the Aboriginal people who agreed to share their stories with me. Um, and so to be able to um, hear from them, I thought was really special, but we created it in a way that just allowed the visitor to sample. You know, they're just quite small. I assume that people would be exhausted. They've just been on this huge journey. And I, I tracked the kind of emotional pacing of the journey because there were, you know, massacres and um, people being separated from, from family and people fleeing hardship. And I thought, you know, we've got to be able to sort of pace this a little bit. And by the time they got to the end, they'd be ready to go. The shop is calling across the hallway and, and on they'd go. They'd listen to two or three, go, that's really interesting. I wonder where my place is in this, in this world that I feel connected to. And, and they'd call it a day. And what we found was that people were fascinated. People really loved hearing other people talk about their connections. And so we ended up having to put benches in because it was we were getting a, a bottleneck of people um, in the space watching all 15 back to back uh, and not wanting to miss any of them. And people have told us... Um, that it, it did what I wanted it to do, which is so gratifying. It made people see Sydney differently when they, they walk out. What I really hope people do, because for me, you know, being born and raised in America and then living um, many decades now in, in Australia, um, these stories aren't my stories. I'm not connected to these stories. But it made me really think about what stories am I connected to, what parts of you know, Maryland history, where my ancestors traveled in the, the 1600s, um, what, what stories do they tell? What, where is this moment for me? So I think for a place like Sydney, which is 
unnormal times, a very international destination. Something as parochial as somebody telling their story of their convict ancestor in a in a you know historic property um, actually has surprisingly long tentacles to make people consider where the, those places are for them in the world, um, and it was a really really gratifying um, experience for the people who participated as well because they they were heard and their connections were validated. And then everyone else who had those same connections felt equally part of the story. So it was a great success from where I was sitting at the end of the day. Yeah. Oh, it's, it sounds wonderful. I think to, to imagine, you know, people arrive, you know, you're, you're, you're one of the crowd, you're one of the city, and you're slowly being warmed up and becoming ever more collaborative and then becoming ultimately a participant in this exchange. I think is is a wonderful thing to do, and and so many people speak of of narrative journeys these days, and that word experience is used constantly. But what you're talking about there is absolutely material. I th- I love that idea that it's alive in them today. That's what you've released. You know, you've kind of awoken that, and you imagine then the conversations that happen thereafter as they're walking down the road, telling each other, phoning up their friends and family, and then it continues, doesn't it? And that that, that that's deeply transformative. Now, t- tell me something about then that what how you and the team. Well, I mean, it's it's an incredibly difficult question, but I'm I'm interested in, you know, creating that active experience and and that transformation for a, from a, a sort of broadcast state, which is what we expect from museums that they're going to tell us stuff, that you're actually getting people to come out and tell their story. I mean, how do you how do you look at that as a team? Are we talking about? lots of journey mapping together because you spoke I liked your phrase about the emotional pacing is that something you're very intentionally looking at at the beginning in terms of the journey we started with a really strong focus on tapping into emotion as part of this experience um you know kind of pretty pretty much knowing that that's how people remember things and um Wanting, wanting to create empathy with what had happened here in the past. And you need the history to understand what's happened in the past. But I didn't want it to be an experience about dates and facts and figures and things in isolation from that kind of um, emotional connection to the people who lived that history. It's very easy, particularly in Australia, where the bureaucracy of the convict system means that there's a really, really detailed official record of, of this history. And it's very um, nicely sewn up. It's very neat and tidy. And um, it hides a lot of the actual lived experience that you need to scratch away at the surface to find. So if you just go into the archives and look at the official record and you you write a bunch of exhibition labels and and you create your experience that way that's one way to understand the history of this place but you don't you don't connect with it in that same way um and i wanted people to to feel that connection to feel that empathy to feel like this this story had had meaning because then those of 
you know, those who are interested have access to all of those records, all of that written documentation, all of the histories that have been published. Um, the museum's role isn't really to just regurgitate all of that to show our public that we happen to know all of that, but to create, I feel, create a kind of genuine emotional connection with that that history so that you value that you value what you can learn from that in the present. And history really is most engaging when it is starting to inform us into the future. And so that act of being um, involved in creating that story, I think is really important. And, and a lot of people who've worked in exhibitions or who've worked in these sorts of um, historical settings um, will we'll say the same, that they there's a there's a whole bunch of kind of documentation and research and archival research that's needed but there's a lot of people who have a kind of stake in this story um whether it's sort of the families of of the original occupants of the historic houses or whether it's the um kind of um inheritors of some of the main events that happened in these places and so I think for me, that's really the where you get into a really interesting moment is when you're able to find that connection with people living today and then use that to help you tell the story. And only then do you really understand its kind of emotional connection. In terms of the mapping, I realised through that process of reaching out to the people connected to this story um, that we were we were tapping into some some very kind of um, deeply meaningful events in in Australia's history, um, whether that be you know the impact on um, convicts of being taken from you know for whatever reason I'm not saying that convicts were victims of the system by and large because often they were habitual um, repeat offenders, um, but the the decision to use transportation as a punishment method meant that they they were disconnected from their communities. Um, now, often, in particularly by the 1830s, there was a sense that some people were committing petty crimes in order to be transported because there was great benefit to coming to Australia. Um, but we realised we were we were starting to pick apart some emotionally challenging stories. Um, and particularly when you look at the impact of the convict system, particularly on um, Aboriginal communities and understanding that when you look at a convict site, you're not looking at a kind of a single place that's within itself. So from an, from an Aboriginal perspective, all of those places are on country and built from country. So the sandstone that's quarried, the um, oysters that are removed um, in order to make the lime, to make the mortar, all of that is part of country. But actually the impact of these convict places is much, much greater. And once we realised that, we realised we were going to be talking about resistance, we were going to be talking about the stolen generation with Aboriginal children taken from their families and placed in convict-built government institutions, and we realised we are going to be talking about massacres. As we moved forward in time and we looked at the reason why young women were starting to sleep in this building, we realised we were going to be dealing with the Irish famine, we were going to be dealing with 
poverty in the UK that led young women to seek assisted um, migration to Australia. And then finally, we were going to be looking at um, sort of the end result of all of this when, when women were, were falling through the cracks and government was needed to, to help people in a benevolent institution. And so, sorry, this is a very long answer, but what I was starting to realize was that um, this story was was about history and was about things that had happened on this site to people, but it was it was so kind of deeply affecting that history. And it was so on the surface of the kinds of things that people experience today. I didn't feel the need to um, kind of put that into people's faces. I think people can make those sort of connections themselves with the kind of um, societies they live in today and be that, you know, asylum seekers or the treatment of women or the kind of decolonial um, movement around understanding the impact on First Nations. People can make those connections. What I was worried about was that we were asking people to, to take on quite a lot in a really immersive sense. And so I wanted to make sure that the, the journey had an emotional map so that there were moments of, of high emotion um, you know, when we were talking about massacres or famine or, or whatnot, um, where you need the right amount of information to, to prepare you for that. And then you had moments after that where you could almost sort of recover from the emotion of that with something just a little bit more straightforward. And, and then there were almost sort of troughs as well, where we actually needed to do a bit of a deep dive into the history so that the visitor felt that they knew enough for the next experience. And so that that kind of um, mapping was almost retrospective in some case when I realized the, 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 the weight of some of the stories that we were putting forward, as well as what we needed to build in to make sure that people understood the story enough. So when I approach these sorts of experiences at particularly historic sites that have really complex stories, I have this little Venn diagram in my head all of the time where you need one circle is that you need to, to kind of physically know where to go. Historic places can be difficult. They're not built as public spaces. So you need enough direction, wayfinding, help, structure so that you feel, okay, I'm in this experience. You're not constantly worried that you're missing something or that you ha it hasn't started yet or that you don't know where you're supposed to go. The circle next to that is the same, but for the content. You need to understand enough about the history. You need to know enough about the story that it makes sense. And only when you have both of those things as your bottom two circles grounding you in this experience, can you relax enough to engage emotionally? And then the third circle sits on top. And so you can you can feel this story because you're comfortable with where you are, you know where to go next. You have an, you've been given enough information, but not too much, um, so that you you feel you really understand what's happening in the story. And then you can really immerse yourself into it. And it gets to this point, I'm hoping for visitors, um, particularly to the high Park Barracks, 
where it's almost like that kind of Sunday afternoon at the movies where you're so engrossed that you forget about the shopping that you're doing after or you forget about the doctor's appointment you've got the next morning and you just allow yourself to be in that space. And so the combination of those two things um, was particularly challenging in this museum because, you know, I made the decision really early on. I wanted it to be an emotional experience, an eyes up experience when you're really connected into it um, and not a reading experience. And so it is a history museum with no text panels um, throughout the entire experience. There's some object labels for the showcases, um, but by and large, it relies on our visitors engaging with the audio um, and multi-sensory experience rather than reading things. So those two bottom circles were even harder. Um, and then when you're trying to get people to emotionally engage, you, they also can't be on 100 for the entire hour that they're going through the experience. So the combination of those two things led to this sort of emotional mapping that we ended up doing. Ooh, that's very well described. I think the, and thinking about the three circles together, that makes enormous sense to me. I liked also your body language, which is, this is audio, so people, I need to describe this, where you're talking about the peaks and troughs of the narrative arc, but not as if Joseph Campbell was rising action to one point. You're constantly talking about those troughs as you build people up. But also your other point was the, the back and forth as how history then communicates with the people in the room. And I thought that was really interesting because I imagine as it's set up on your walls around you that you have thoughts about who your audience is or, or participant is, but you also have thoughts of the history and you're constantly brokering that relationship back and forth. And I, I'm fascinated with that because I think many exhibitions we've been involved in, and this is maybe some time ago, maybe it's not the current way of doing things, but often people fall in love with their text. They fall in love with the the story and then it becomes imposed upon the museum thereafter and so people feel compelled to have labels because they spent so long writing them and I think you know what you're talking about here is something that's much more organic now now I'm moving you spoke there about sites of complex stories and I know that you have a project that you're beginning now the female factory that might be one of your biggest challenges and it will need all of these Venn diagrams, an extraordinary kind of ability to broker time, but also broker space, because also this is very complicated spatially. Could, could you tell us a little bit about the context of that project, which I think is pretty fresh, isn't it? Yes, yes. We've only just started thinking about a potential new museum at a different site. It's in the western part of Sydney. It's called the Parramatta Female Factory and Institutions Precinct. So we, we need to do some work on the kind of how, what are we going to name this museum <laughs> as well. Um, but it, it, in short, um, this is a, this is a um, nationally heritage listed precinct of 31 buildings and 16 open spaces um, that dates from the same period as the Hyde Park Barracks. So it was built in the early 18, it opened in 1821. Um, as a women's convict site. So it's the kind of companion site in many ways to the Hyde Park Barracks. It was called a female factory because it was built on the same um, kind of plans and thinking as the English workhouses. 
and the, the women convicts who stayed there often were, were transient. They were often coming off of a ship, being assigned to, as domestic servants to, to work off their sentence and then sent to um, whatever household they were going to be working in. Um, but there were some women who were in government employ, and so they were put to work um, weaving, creating fabric, doing um, needlework and other sewing. But it also became um, a kind of hub for um, controlling female convicts. And so there was this idea that, that um, you know, the women convicts far more than men needed to be controlled, needed to be contained, needed to be sort of separated from society. So when they were in domestic service, and they were a maid in a colonial household. They were contained and controlled. But when they were sort of at large, this was quite um, confronting for the colonial society. And so this female factory and many others like it were created. Um, and so um, what it became both the kind of administrative center of of um, women convicts, but also it became a place where convicts were sent for punishment. So if you um, were in domestic service and you um, did something that was considered, um, you know, against the social norms, or if you acted out or you spoke back or you became pregnant through whatever means, whether it was your doing or not, you would be sent back to the factory. Then it became, they added another class of convicts, which they called the third class of convicts, which was a purely punishment um, class. And so it, it was a reformatory punishment class um, for women who were sentenced to an additional punishment once they were already in the colony, which was their punishment that they were sentenced to um, from um, England or Ireland or, or Wales or other parts of the British Empire. Um, and so this site was a, is a really interesting site for the same reasons as the barracks, um, except that it's got this whole other dimension because it was this story of women and how women were treated within the colony. Then like the barracks, but really in, in quite different ways as well, it's its story after the end of the convict system, so when it stopped being a convict female factory in 1848, um, is really, really complicated because it, this site becomes <clears throat> an asylum and then it and then it that be, that starts its journey as a mental health facility and that continues up until today. So it went from being what they call the lunatic asylum to what they call the hospital for the insane to a psychiatric center, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now um, it, it still continues as the campus of Cumberland Hospital, which arguably is the longest um, continually operating mental health facility um, in Australia, if not the Southern Hemisphere. Um, they are gradually vacating the site for more modern premises, which has meant that it's it's available um, for reuse. The site also on its southern area en encompasses a building that was built in the 1840s as an orphanage, a Roman Catholic orphanage. And that building then became the Parramatta Industrial School for Girls. And then in its various iterations um, from the late 1800s, through to the 1970s um, was a reformatory 
organization for young women and then became a detention center and a, and a um, correctional facility all the way up until 2010. So this is a really, really complex site that has a lot of institutional, government institutional history. And when we talk about how a story impacts on people's lives and it reverberates today in those lives, this site combines that same um, connection and passion that people descended from those women convicts who went through this site feel, along with a whole host of people who experienced those institutions um, in, in quite terrible ways, but also in, in healing ways in, in terms of the mental health or who worked in the hospital. Um, the most affecting stories, of course, are, are, are from the orphanage period, but also um, the, through, the, through the, that really terrible history of the reformatory um, and detention and centres, the sort of juvenile detention centres where, where quite young um, women generally, um, some boys as well, were, were put in really quite um, traumatic detention situations. And that continues up through living memory. So we also have a whole cohort of, of people um, in their sort of 50s, 60s and 70s now um, who went through those institutions and who suffered from them. And, and this all has come out in, in recent decades through various royal commissions. There was an apology in 2014, a memorial garden um, has opened on the site to, to mark um, as, a, as an apology from government to what happened to people there. So this museum that we're talking about making on this site has to encompass all of these stories, create a way to understand this really significant history, but also provide um, people the opportunity to, to be represented and their experiences, should they wish to share them, which many seem to want to, to be validated um, through, through this experience that we will be creating. The most important thing about this site is you can't make it into a museum. It's 31 buildings. It's, it's, and, and it would just, it would kind of be pickled in the past and, and die essentially. So the decision was made that the museum would be embedded across the precinct, but it would also have a series of tenancies. So there's a, there's an innovation hub that's a, going to open shortly, which is a, a startup um, kind of work hub of subsidized, slightly subsidized ten tenancy model for employment opportunities in that kind of innovation precinct. We're very close to the Westmead um, Health and Innovation District, which is a really big medical facility in Western Sydney. But the decision was, was equally made that this was a really important place for the community and it needs to be community facing. And so there'll be a series of buildings that will be repurposed for social enterprise tenancies. So these are subsidized tenancies for charitable and community focused um, organizations. Um, we, we don't know who those will be that hasn't really um, gone through. So the museum will, will join this kind of three part precinct to to make it something that the museum's role is to hold these stories to hold this community for whom these stories are so important to make meaning of this place and and it's really incredibly important history which is significant across all of those things i spoke about but also 
to really be focused on the future, to make something that's that's living <laughs> in, in the truest sense of, of the word um, so that this doesn't become um, something that 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 is always looking backwards and always sort of looking. It needs to be informed by the trauma that was experienced on this site, but it's not defined by that. And that's not universal to everyone's experience either. So it's an incredibly complex project, um, but potentially one of the most important um, that I've ever tackled myself in, in my career. And there's a lot of um, questions that I have no idea what the answer is yet to be as we struggle to work our way through what this experience might look like. Which I guess is that's a real virtuous circle, isn't it? When you 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 struggling through that as you imagine, then the process moving forward. I mean, it strikes me listening to you of the idea of holding stories and almost receiving, but then also transmitting. It sounds like you're speaking about something that's almost more programmed than place, is almost more like a, a channel than anything else. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering to what extent this will become yeah, a, a live program building over the years and to what extent, I mean, the, the important thing I suppose about creating a, a museum and particularly the way you approach it is you have to open on a certain day and welcome people on that day and be relatively complete. I wonder if something like this by its nature will never be complete and then it will always evolve and get, well, get more resonant with time. What, what do you think about that? I think well we're we're so early in the process um we're we're literally just at the beginning of master planning and we're starting to to kind of an evolving vision is coming through this process which is um really all that I've been able to talk to you about is this sort of evolving vision of what this might be um we still have a whole series of hoops to jump through in terms of you know getting this funded to make this a real thing um so so we're in the process of doing that and i think as part of those conversations one of the things that's become that's come up really strongly is that sense that whatever it is that we create on this site um has to be as much about the future as the past and that actually that means that it's constantly being made and its very existence is constantly making the memories for the for the future and that the museum um, and the function that we serve is also to capture those those living memories the active memory as much as as telling the stories of the past the other thing that's come up in a lot of our conversations is is museum the right word for what we're trying to do. You know, it's a shorthand, it helps us talk to government who's our funders and and, and potential um, other supporters. It's, it's a word that community understands means that there's a safe pair of hands that's gonna look after a place and keep its, its history and its story and its significance, um, as opposed to, you know, other, parts of government that might want to develop things for for ways that doesn't seem like a safe pair of hands to community. So there's a lot of reasons why museum is used, but I'm being challenged more and more with, are you really making a museum? 
you know, and so I think what we'll end up doing is that we will make a museum because I think there's a promise there that needs to be kept, that when people come to a site like this, there will be a part of it where they can go and learn those histories and meet those people for whom this story is important. But I think we'll also be creating an entire landscape of stories across the precinct so that anyone incidentally walking through, if they go to work there every day, or if they're there for, for an event that's put on, um, has, a, has an opportunity to engage in whatever way. And I also think that we'll, as an organization, we will need to behave quite differently. We will need to be be sort of truly community facing. You know, there's a lot of talk at the moment. It's interesting looking at the um, that the recent trends watch coming out of the American Alliance of Museums, which is looking at museums as part of um, the kind of social infrastructure, in the same way that you know all the other bits of infrastructure that we challenge are so important that that we need to start seeing um, museums in that same sense and recognizing that what we do in terms of our value proposition um, as, a, as, as assets of social infrastructure um, can, be, can be better articulated. And I was just reading that recently and thinking about this particular project. And actually, we're kind of starting from the beginning saying that actually what we're creating on site is part experience, part museum, part social infrastructure, um, and, a, and a big part is education that, that's part of that. We're still meeting the people to whom this story matters. Um, and there's, a, there's a, a lot of people that we haven't spoken to yet. So what what the kind of take home is um is is still to be revealed but i'm finding more and more that what people are looking for um is not just the ability for this history and this site to be preserved that's kind of like that's a bare minimum of course it's going to have, to have a conservation master plan and all the heritage buildings are going to be looked after and all the interventions are going to be reversible and the history is going to be told. But what else are you doing is the kind of space that we're in now as a, as a field in some ways. But this site that really brings that um, to the fore. And I think that there's an opportunity um, to, to really make a meaningful difference if we position this in the right way. Well, I, I, I find it, it's, it's wonderful kind of hearing a little bit behind the scenes. And I think this landscape of community facing stories you speak of, of something being constantly being made, I find yeah, really powerful because I think a lot of, a lot of people listening, a lot of the people we've been speaking to recently are talking about sustaining community participation that essentially particularly through and after the pandemic we've become ever more atomized as a society that you know so much of you know whether it's losing our time to netflix or buying our food through dark kitchens we're getting ever more separated and so the idea of this you know this social infrastructure you speak of 
is so needed in terms of brokering relationships, not just between past and present, but between all of us, you know, every day in a living place. And so I'm interested in maybe a, a last point from you in terms of what you might, yeah, what, what we might tell those people, because I think, you know, that one point you're talking about brokering people and program and place and those elements together seems to be a constant thread which I think would be true of almost any great city-making project today. And I wonder if there's any last words we should give those people who are looking to inspire participation. Um, well, <laughs> it's so <laughs> difficult, isn't it? Um, it, it, it? This, you know, in, in theory, being able to create something that, that holds a space for community, particularly for the community that that these government institutions impacted in such deep ways, um, I think is is really important. But it can't be the end of the story. Like this place needs to be somewhere that um, provides, in, in a really active sense, something that people need. I think that that's really what it comes down to: is maintaining participation means that you're um you're providing something whether it's a service or a place or a um, experience or a cup of coffee whatever it is that that people need and want to continue to to connect in with um and some of that's really really kind of um in depth and that's where people are telling you about their connections to the place and and contributing to the oral history collection or are part of a community group that you provide meeting space for and they're there every month so there's those really deep levels of connection but some of it can just be you know I've got my um, family and it's a nice day and um, you know we want to go somewhere for a couple of hours and you're providing something that's got the right infrastructure comfort levels accessibility price point through to you know something that you want to bring your your visitors to the city to and and I don't have an answer to that because <laughs> that's the holy grail that we're all trying to get to um, but I think that this particular project there's probably more there's more connections with those deep um, deeply rooted, communities that see themselves reflected in this story than potentially in some of our other historic properties. And so where do you, how, how do you create that to be something that's in the present and looking to the future rather than just telling the stories of the past? And once I've figured that out, Adam, you'll be the first to know. Well, Bev, is it absolutely illuminating to hear you talking about this and I love everything you've done all the body language constantly hands moving spinning it's active it's stepping forward it's you know you're, you're constantly attentive to all these inputs and I, I love it I love your practice I love what you do I greatly look forward to experiencing well firstly I, to, to my great uh, yeah sort of badness deep badness I haven't been to the um to the barracks so I look forward to that next time I come to Sydney and uh yeah good luck with the female factory it's an extraordinarily important project and I yeah I'm, I'm, I feel it's safe in your hands so Beth thank you so much for your time today it's been wonderful thank you 
Thank, Thank you. you very much, Adam. Thank you for listening to the Free Thinking Podcast today. Do subscribe so you know when the next episodes are and do leave us a comment so we can get better and better. Thank you and see you soon.